Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm Steve Phillips, and today we are going to be talking about the Republican Party. Yes, the Republican Party. Not a frequent uh, topic of conversation on this podcast, but it is a very important and dominant force within the country and where things are heading. And so as we gear up for 2024, definitely something that uh, is worth digging into in terms of understanding the dynamics and what's happening and where things are going, what the implications are. And I did just want to be, frame this up off the top with a little bit of a historical understanding of the racial composition and priorities of the parties, because I think that affects why this is so important to people across the political spectrum. And so it's often kind of lost the history that the Democrats were the actual party of the Confederacy. They were the ones fighting and killing people to be able to preserve the right to buy and sell black people in 1850s, 1860s. And that the Republicans were created in large part as the anti-slavery party. And so that really and was a lot of how the original uh, orientation and composition of these parties came to be. And many of the major steps towards equality and justice after the Civil War in terms of Reconstruction and civil rights laws and the constitutional amendments were championed by progressive Republicans or radical Republicans, as they called them at the time. But then in the 20th century, I think I use this phrase in the, my book, How We Win the Civil War, is that as the Democrats tiptoed towards black people and issues of civil rights and equality, white Southerners, white Southerners drawn to white nationalism sprinted to the Republicans. And that began in 1948 when President Truman was expressing support for the Civil Rights Act of that time. And then Strom Thurmond, uh, who was the senator of South Carolina, he was the governor of South Carolina at the time, led the Dixiecrat presidential campaign to really punish the Democrats and try to split off the vote and try to attack them for that. And then in the 60s, Thurmond moved to the Republican Party and vouched for Nixon with Republicans as he was facing the camp campaign of the segregationist George Wallace, the governor of, of Alabama at the time. And he brought his white nationalist credentials to Nixon's campaign and waved the Republican voters over to the Republican parties that come on in. And a lot of that was the big part of the exodus. And then a lot of that was capped in uh, 1980 when Ronald Reagan launched his presidential campaign in Mississippi, in the county where the civil rights workers Swerner, Goodman and Cheney were killed. We talked about Mississippi and Freedom Summer. We had Heather Booth on the podcast recently. And so Reagan went there to announce his candidacy, declare his support for states' rights, and send the signal semi-coded, not that coded, that the Republicans were the party that was going to defend white nationalism. If you were fearful about what was happening with racial diversity, come on over Republican Party. And then the culmination of all of that, of course, is Donald Trump in 20, 2016. So that is the context within which we are now looking at what's going to happen in 2024, the rest of this decade, where do we go, how the various parties relate to uh, both the, the different groups that comprise this country and fundamentally relate to the fundamental question that we keep trying to pose that we're grappling with. Is this fundamentally a white country or is this a multiracial democracy, a democracy in color? So that's the conversation we're going to dig into today. And for the conversation, I am joined as always, and we will be guided on the conversation by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. How are you? Is your husband managing to survive the fact that his basketball team is 
not guaranteed to be one of the best ones, but maybe. And um, how are you doing overall? <laughs> I'm doing well, and yes, so uh, well, I would I would say you know the the these warrior fans they don't really get into that mindset of our team is not the best. <laughs> yes, the phrase entitlement you know, he, may yep. or may not come to mind. <laughs> I know it irks you so, but for sure they you know the game you know last night and some recent games have had him at the edge of his seat and perhaps being vocal towards the screen, as I call it. (laughs) (laughs) But um, there's also vocal elation at the end when they win. He also got to go uh, recently. You brought it up. So, you know, politics aside, it's fun to talk about these things. I'm, I'm a, I observe with like interest, my husband's excitement around watching, watching the Warriors, but he did get to bring our daughter to a first live Warriors game. And it was, I feel happy that it was a game that they did win and they had an awesome time. And so that is, she said it was on her bucket list, not, not, necessarily just to watch the warriors but to taste one of the salted pretzels from the stadium wait is... <laughs> how old is your daughter she's 11. she has a bucket list at 11 of what she's trying oh to you know kids today they it's all about like stuff that they they learn about on i guess the internet i'm like yeah same thing i was like how do you know what a bucket list is so <laughs> she has a, a bucket list that keeps growing one of them was to go see the warriors so that she could try the pretzel and i was like that's an expensive pretzel but um, the game was good. The pretzel was good. So money worth, you know, worth spent. And she was, it was a reward for doing well in school. So it was <laughs> just a nice daddy daughter out, outing. That's great. Yeah. Let's get down to talking about our main topic today. I also am intrigued and glad that we are talking today and focusing an entire episode on the Republican Party, because out of all our episodes, and we've done so many, we I don't think we've ever done that. Mm-hmm. And I do think it's important because their behavior and their wretchedness and their workings are what shape, you know, are what put, are putting our democracy's fate in peril and increasingly so. And so I'm really interested in having this conversation about where we think they are right now, and especially heading into next year's election season. Right now we are in, we just wrapped up the first quarter of this year. I find that sometimes hard to believe, but as this episode is airing, it will be the beginning of April. And we still have a ways to go until the 2024 election really kicks into high gear. But it does feel like that time is flying. And I know that we're going to definitely have much more to say as it gets more, uh, you know, just the momentum builds and there's more to talk about. But today we do want to just have like an episode where we're going to check in and assess the current slate of Republicans contending for the White House or who we think are going to be some of the top contenders. And, you know, these are going to be people who we may or may not see during the presidential election next year, but are currently making, you know, enough waves and in the news that would be worth pausing and kind of checking out and talking about what we think of them and where where they're going heading in terms of their campaigning. Primarily, we're going to be talking about former President Donald Trump, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and former South Carolina Governor and UN Ambassador Nikki Haley. And we're also going to talk about South Carolina Senator Tim Cook, because these four people are basically and arguably right now the top current contenders and they're getting the most media coverage uh, heading into you know this season as it heats up 
Steve, before we dive in, what is your overall assessment of the Republican Party right now? And where do you think it's heading? So I was reflecting back on this in terms of where they were at in 2013. And it's really so it's so hard to even reflect upon that in terms of the comparing it. But they did this report after a, losing to a black man for the White House twice. And a number of the top Republican leaders did this report that was referred to as the Republican Party autopsy of 2013 and the Growth and Opportunity Project. And it was like the things they said in there. About, so these are just a couple of the quotes from that. Right? It says, many minorities wrongly think Republicans do not like them or want them in the country. The demographic changes add to the urgency of recognizing how precarious our position has become. And so they're making that observation, talking about the importance of inclusivity and not being divisive, and then went the exact opposite direction. Mm -hmm. But not only did they go the exact opposite direction, because for most of the, from the post-Civil War period, um, like I, you know, talking in in, uh, the Civil War about the, the Confederates have silently sanctioned terrorism. And there's been frequent, you know, dog whistles and illusions and coded language to try to fan the fears of white people. And the conventional wisdom among most people in the Republican Party was that you couldn't be too explicit in terms of the appeals to, you know, white fears, written racial resentments. And then Trump's success in 2016, which you will still lost the history, is really an accidental a presidency, a dog catching the car situation, but it upended everything and it, and it re-scrambled all of the assumptions around what's possible, what you can get away with, how contemptuous you can be of standards and institutions. And that's the context within which everyone is now trying to figure out and make sense of what do you do and where do we go and how do things function from here? So Trump was able to win with what was thought to be, you know, politically toxic approach that would not work. So then it's like, well, what do we take from that? They're thinking on the Republican side. And then he lost reelection. And then most of the die hardest Trump folks in 2022 lost. And so many of them did in many different places. And this is why the Democrats, part of the reason why they did better in the midterms than people thought. The other part is the turnout that we were talking about. So I say all that to say that the Republican Party is in a very kind of, I don't know if precarious is quite the right word, but they're, they're at a juncture around what direction are they going to go? And are they going to go all in on white fear, racial resentment, you know, handmaid's tale type approach to things that they're trying to do in uh, uh, Florida, or are they going to try to be cognizant of the racial diversity of the country, the, the changing demographic composition, and be mindful and relational to that. And so there's a lot of unclarity, and it's going to be you know, a very important, I don't hesitate to use the word fascinating because it's caught this, the stakes are too high to say that, mm-hmm. but it's going to be very significant in that regard. And then we forget that in 2015, there was this whole motion and direction that it was going to be a more diverse piece, right? Marco Rubio, you have this Latino running as one of the top candidates. Jeb Bush, who was married to uh, Mexican-American women, um, had, his kids um, are Latino. And so those are the leading candidates. And so then you 
They, they get crushed by Trump. Trump wins. So there's a, it's a very pivotal moment. And they're not clear what direction they're going to go, what kind of coalition they can put together, how long they can hold together electorally powerful uh, movement that's primarily, if not solely, based on white racial resentment. Yeah, and I think that that context is all really important to keep in mind, as well as something that <clears throat> I know you've said a lot, and I, I think it's always worth repeating, which is that they're the minority. Exactly. It's so easy to feel, especially when you see images of footage of these of rallies, like Trump rallies. Like yeah, and let me interrupt you on that, Shirley, yeah. to emphasize that point. Because I actually only really recently realized this when I was going back and looking at the numbers, that in the presidential elections, which is the closest thing we have to a national proxy you know, vote within this country, highest turnout, everyone voting for the same uh, candidate, the, the, the choices, that the Republicans have lost the popular vote in every single presidential election since 1992, with the sole exception of 2004. So all of those elections, it's been like 90% of them, Democrats have gotten the most votes. So they are, in fact, a minority party, and we do lose sight of that. You mean in terms of those elections, the popular vote was actually won by the Correct. Democratic candidate? Gore won the popular vote over Bush in 2000, obviously Obama. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote over Trump in 2016. So from Bill Clinton in 92, all the way up through Biden 2020, the sole exception of Bush's re-election, Democrats have won the popular vote. Wow, that's that's incredible. It makes me like angry. Don't I'm going to like feel like going off again about the electoral college system because I'm like, it doesn't make any sense. It's, yeah. like, uh, it's not who the majority of people wanted, but that is the system we have. And I am really glad to, I need to keep that in mind because lately I've been having these panic moments where in some sort of PTSD where I think to myself, oh my God, Trump's going to win again. And my mind just goes to this place. So today I want to talk about all of this from a strategic standpoint, both on what these Republican presidential contenders that I mentioned before, those those top, what we see right now is the quote top four, what they're up to and probably what they're planning in terms of how they're going to try to win. So first, I wanted to start by having us talk about my favorite former president and possibly, you know, one of the candidates next year, a former president who should definitely be in jail already, one Donald Trump. As I was mentioning about his recent rally, he had a rally on Saturday, March 25th, in Waco, Texas, out of all places. And it was just basically reminiscent of some of his former campaign rallies in 2016, 2020. And, you know, watching clips of that just gave me PTSD. It was like, I, this man still holds so much power among at, at least, some, you know, some segment of the population. It's like a cult fever. And just a reminder, he's currently facing several investigations let us count the ways. In New York, he's facing possible indictment over hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. In Georgia, the DA is considering charges against him for his attempts to overturn 2020 presidential election. And then nationally, the Justice Department appointed a special counsel to look into the classified documents that the FBI found at Mar-a-Lago, as well as his interference with the 2020 presidential election and his role in the January 6th insurrection. So there's all that. And then he just still has the gall to come out. He's 
rallying up his modern-day Confederate troops and followers. He was at Waco. Um, that rally came against 30 years after the, for those who don't remember or who did don't know the, the history, that was a place where the federal and state law enforcement had a raid 30 years ago on the Branch Davidian. It was a cult, and they had a compound there. And what resulted was a, that group had a 51-day siege, and the result of that was tragically the death of 86 people. And Waco has since become a symbol of government overreach by the far right. And so Trump staging and holding his rally there was by no means any kind of coincidence. It was very intentional. So Steve, I wanted to ask you what you thought of Trump's rally and having it at Waco. What do you think he's trying to do? And also, I can't help but wonder, can you imagine if he was a former president who is a man of color with all these indictments that he's facing and somebody who was impeached twice and just still out there and according to polls, a leading candidate heading into the presidential cycle for his party? Well, well, I can't imagine it because it was a few months ago that a person who basically had didn't live in the state he was running for Senate and had basically admitted to holding a gun to the head of his wife and it was ousted as having fathered multiple children that he didn't uh, admit to even after proclaiming himself to be this devout religious person, Herschel Walker Mm. ran and almost won the seat in the United States Senate over Raphael Warnock, the literal descendant of Martin Luther King. And I think what Trump has really clarified in the country, as I was saying, a lot of this stuff had been more coded. Nothing matters other than which side are you on in this battle over is this primarily a white country or is it a multiracial nation? And if you can show your loyalty, regardless of what your skin color is, your loyalty to that cause and your opposition to the multiracial uh, democracy reality, then there are a lot of people who will vote for you. And I mean, it's funny, but it's not. So when Obama ran in 2012 for re-election, there was a, a, a white guy in prison in West Virginia who somehow got his name on the ballot, ran against Obama in the West Virginia primary in 2012 and got 40% of the vote against the sitting president of the United States of America. And so that and then Trump and then Walker show that nothing matters other than what side are you on. So there is that piece. But I think the thing about the, and thank you, not thank you for forcing me to watch those, uh, that Waco rally in preparation for this podcast, but it's important. And it was the thing about we do it so you don't have to, that, and I think it's really important contextually to understand. And again, I didn't understand, I didn't even know this until, you know, a few months ago, I think I was preparing for one of my speeches. When Trump got into the race in 2015, he was polling at 4%. He was seen as a joke, it was still a joke, but he was seen, he was not taken seriously at all. He was only at 4%, didn't have electoral viability. He announced his candidacy in June, called out and attack, attacked Mexicans, rapists, et cetera, got criticism for that, stood up to that criticism and sent the very clear signal that he was the person who was going to attack people of color and he was going to be the defender um, of whites within this country. And he immediately, immediately rocketed to the top of the polls and went the first place in the Republican Party and never looked back. So that's the fundamental reality And that while he's not an inordinately bright man, he understands that type of situation. So what he is trying to do, and he has understood that you inflame the white people is the way to actually build 
political power. So that's what that Waco rally was all about. It says, I am your retribution is one of the, the quotes that he actually has in there. And so he's also trying, you know, he would try to slightly walk back some of these things in terms of not being quite um, as provocative, but really trying to send the signal that he is still going to be the champion. And I just want to give this quote to our listeners. So N-word alert, but it's important. I think it's important to hear it and to say it in terms of understanding our politics in this country. So George Wallace, who was the governor of uh, Alabama in the 1950s, Selma Montgomery March, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, he was on the other side of all of that stuff, literally stood in the schoolhouse door and announced, he, he celebrated to his inauguration when he won in the same spot where Jefferson Davis, the president of the, of the Confederacy had been. And he had, there's this quote from Wallace, I have it in, in, in uh, How We Win the Civil War. Wallace says, quote, I started off talking about schools and highways and prisons and taxes, and I couldn't make them listen. Then I began talking about niggers, and they stomped the floor. That's the quote. That's what Trump has discovered. And that's what's going to be an animating reality of this race, because he knows his political strength is to the extent that he can get these folks to stomp the floor by more and more outrageous and racist and inflammatory rhetoric. And that is going to be the dynamic of what we are faced with over the next 18 plus months. Uh, that is that is really heartening. <laughs> no, it's, well, it shows it's, you the stakes of what's it. We're yeah, up it's important to be like clear eyed. And I, I think that is, you know, why I had a bit of a visceral response when I saw those videos, which is like never say never, um, because we've already seen what he's capable of and what this country is capable of. And as I say, that the majority of white people voted for him twice. I remember when Trump ran in 2015, 2016, I remember saying that, I was saying to Susan, it's like, he's like, he's going to get these government forces going to go around and round up people who aren't, and it's like, you can't do that. You can't have that. I thought the the rhetoric I thought was not implementable. And then he becomes president and he passes a ban on all Muslims. um, Right. And so it's, and it's like, we should not underestimate what is possible that we think we discount the rhetoric and we don't think it's going to lead to action. And so the inflammatory thing is, again, something I didn't know until more recently historically. In Germany, Hitler was arrested and put in prison long before he became the ultimate head of Germany. But then they let him out and they didn't take his inflammatory rhetoric sufficiently seriously. And so whether you want to go to that extreme or not, the concept of somebody who's fundamentally predicated upon white nationalism and the potential for that rhetoric to spill over into harmful and destructive action cannot be underestimated. Yeah. And on that note, I'll just also remind people that he was also the one who, you know, fanned the flames of anti-Asian sentiments during the pandemic by, exactly. uh, you know, coded and not so coded calling, you know, the COVID virus, the Chinese virus, the Kung flu virus. And during that time, we just saw anti-Asian hate, discrimination, attacks against Asian Americans across this country skyrocket. And they're still at record highs to to this day. And real people were harmed. Um, Some real people did die as a result of their injuries. So it is, that's just one example. And it's, you know, that's the kind of that's those are the kind of results and consequences that we just need to 
Yeah. Keep I mean, in there mind. was that. There was the killing and the mass murder in, in South Texas. There was the mass murder at the Tree of Life Synagogue. All where people were explicitly talking about the rhetoric that was coming from certainly the Trump environment, if not Trump himself, being part of what motivated them to actually go out and kill people. There's the signaling that that was the, the work that needed to be done in order to preserve whiteness in this country. With that, let's. I knew this was going to be a really happy, <laughs> happy, happy episode. Sober. <laughs> let's um, pivot to my favorite Floridian modern day Confederate running for president next year. Try to try to also win a seat in that primary is Ron DeSantis, who Trump also took several jabs at during his rally. And I will say the only thing maybe I like about Ron DeSantis is that he pisses off Trump. (laughs) But other than that, um, he's also dangerous and I'm deeply concerned about his presence in our political system. He has started a culture war fight with Walt Disney Company, the College Board, LGBTQ rights advocates, and Black historians. And as our former podcast guest and Atlantic writer, Ron Brownstein, who's also, I feel like he's like one of my favorite journalists. And I I know we you know, we're big fans of his work. He recently wrote, DeSantis has been most aggressive on education, restricting how schools talk about race and gender, banning discussion on sexual orientation from K to third grade, also known as the don't say gay bill. And DeSantis has been attempting to remove books that touch on subjects like race, gender and sexuality from the classroom. And he's also been trying to block the college board's AP class on African-American studies. First of all, Steve, this is also clearly to me an example of two of the key points that you really focus on in your book, How We Win, which is how modern day Confederates continue to wage war against democracy. One, they ruthlessly rewrite the laws, and then two, they distort public opinion. Can you talk a little bit about that in that context of your book and this history and what Confederates did and what modern Confederates continue to do and what DeSantis is trying to do. So he's very clearly trying to do the George Wallace thing of getting them to stomp the floor, right? And that he's also using his uh, platform and the power that comes from that to attack substantively and symbolically any groups or policies or programs that relate to a multiracial, multicultural majority and to explicitly attack them. And he has done that in a way which has accrued to his political benefit among white voters in particular. So he saw what Trump did in 2016 in terms of how banning the flames of hatred, division, white fear and resentment, and the political benefits that accrued to that and has totally doubled down and then tried to implement that in Florida and through all of these different measures. And that, so what he does is attacks people, he gets this all his attention, and then it strengthens his hold among that sector of the population that wants this country to not become a multiracial, multicultural enterprise. He's just picked these things one after the other, and a lot of it's in terms of what will give him prominence and visibility and raise his profile. And he has done it quite successfully, actually, in terms of that objective, raising the profile, attracting support from that constituency. And so he's been just kind of relentlessly thing after another, all the things that you had mentioned, 
trying to signal that he is the modern day George Wallace and he's the modern day Donald Trump, actually. So given all that, if DeSantis, by the way, just to be clear, he hasn't officially announced that he'll run yet in the Republican primary. But if the election were today, how do you think DeSantis would fare against Trump? Well, this is the most fascinating question in, in, in national politics right now. And it's also probably one of the most dangerous, because we were just talking about. Trump has, you know, has uh, honed the skill set around inflaming the fears and resentments of white people in ways that accrue to his political benefit. And has not experienced any or much consequence in that regard. I mean, he lost the election, but frankly, he never even really even wanted to be president. He's wanted to be famous. And so he there's no limit to what Trump will do in terms of what he will say and do and how extreme and outrageous he will stir the pot. So that's one major dynamic of what's going to be taking place in this race. And then he'll be up against DeSantis, who has already stirred the pot and been outrageous and built his Confederate bona fides in Florida with all these policies that he's passing. And so there's going to be a real race to the Confederate bottom between the two of them. Now, the other interesting thing, dynamic about it is that DeSantis is not as rhetorically, not just flamboyant, but like crude, frankly, in terms of the, he doesn't have that extra level of baggage. Also in terms of the personal behavior, the hush money to porn stars, the other things that embarrass the wealthier white people who share the view that it should be a white country, but they don't like all of the rough edges around Trump. So a lot of the establishment, um, Republican Party people, they gravitate toward, to DeSantis because they think that he's the person who can advance the cause, but without the baggage. And so he'll have that additional advantage, but I don't know how much of an advantage. Because, you know, Jeb Bush had a lot of that advantage as well. So the real issue is... How large is the the MAGA base within the Republicans? And it's I think it's far larger than any of us realized in 2015 and 2016. How many of them will defect from Trump to DeSantis? Mm. And then what role will those who are not quite as you know extreme in their animated uh, sense around this battle, where will they go? So that's a little bit of hedging the bets, but I would not discount Donald Trump in a, in a Republican primary that, you know, reading, watching these articles and, and reading these stories about the Waco rally, was it 90%? I believe or only 10% of Republicans believe that Trump has done something wrong, right? And so the lock he has on the Republican wow. Party is considerable and not to be, you know, dismissed. And so... I don't know. We'll see. And that's what's going to be the dynamic. Um, but DeSantis will be, I think he's almost definitely running. He wouldn't be doing all this stuff if he weren't running. So he'll be strong. He'll be a force. He'll have a broader uh, swath, I think, of the mainstream Republican Party. But Trump is the head of a cult. He's called followers. You know, will follow him to the ends of the earth. Okay, let's turn to another Republican presidential hopeful, one of my favorite all-time you have a lot Asian of favorites women. that you're articulating in this podcast. <laughs> You'll right? notice that when I say favorite, I, I don't actually mean favorite, but I, I like to just say, you know, my favorite that way. Uh, in this case, my all-time favorite Asian woman in politics that I'll say uh, compared to 
toilet paper supplies in the spring of 2020. That is all sold out. Yeah, I, I miss my I miss my calling. Yes, you did. It's an original. I could take that one's for free. I was like, where is she going uh, with that? <laughs> I'm talking about former South Carolina governor and United Nations ambassador Nikki Haley. Haley, who started uh, kicked off her campaign in February, is uh, Indian American, and she does like to celebrate and talk a lot about her South Asian heritage. She claims she starts every speech saying, I'm the proud daughter of Indian immigrants. And yet she also has no problem like distancing herself from racism or the issues of identity politics. And there was apparently a time, according to some research I did, where she did used to speak out against racism, which would make sense. Her, you know, she would talk about how her dad uh, was subject to racism and that, you know, her, she had some things to say, and she would even use the word, you know, white supremacy as in it's a bad thing. But now that she is really hoping to become the next president in one of her recent rallies, she said, Joe and Kamala even say America's racist. Take it from me, the first minority female governor in history. America is not a racist country because, you know, if somebody like her can make it, well, then gosh darn it, there's no way that this country could be racist. That means nobody else is experiencing racism because you know it's all about her narrative and how she wants to spin it right now. So you can see I'm I'm a big fan of her as well. Her, you know, current stance on race relations in the US, I think is interesting because as I mentioned before, she used to use this story about seeing the police racially profile her Sikh father who wore a turban. But right now she's just, you know, all of that is like forgotten and forgiven because it doesn't it doesn't fit the narrative that she needs for the brand she's trying to portray currently. Dave, what what do you think about her? You clearly know I have quite a bit more to say about her, but yes. I think that'll be enough for today. I, I think it just I think it, you know, it particularly gets me because she is an Asian woman, Asian American woman, so am I. And this kind of hypocrisy and being a sellout this way and, and so clearly unabashedly really, really drives me nuts. Right. So let's, let's not get it twisted in terms of how far of a, you know, rainbow coalition acolyte she is, right. That she does not, her actual name, right. Is Nimarada Haley, right. Which is more Indian sounding, right. Than Nikki mm-hmm. Haley. Right. So she mm-hmm. has clearly chosen to go with the, less ethnic name. My, my, my first time I saw Kamal Bell do stand-up comedy was like 2006. And he's like, Barack Obama's not going to get elected president. Not with a name like that. His name may as well be Blackity Black. Right? <laughs> so, but yet he put that, you know, Barack Hussein Obama challenged yeah. the country to vote for somebody with that name. Haley's gone a different route. They got this Anglo name. She sounds like a white cheerleader. Right. And then that's not... That you, trying to take credit for taking down the Confederate flag um, after the shootings in um, South Carolina with somebody who was a big champion of the Confederate flag. And so she gets credit that I think she gets far more credit than she deserves. I mean, I still remember when that, because I remember when that, when that whole dynamic took place. And I remember I said to Susan at the time, I was like, if they don't take that flag down, that I am going to go down to South Carolina, I'm going to take it down myself. Right. 
And then when Bree Newsom climbed up the flagpole to take it uh, down, I told Susan, and she's all like, so now you don't have to go down there. And take it down, <laughs> right? Such an awesome moment. But I stayed up all night listening to that debate in the South Carolina legislature. There were close to a hundred, because they had to get the vote taken that night or else because of the, the procedures that would have effectively defeated it. So it would have stayed up, the Confederate flag would have stayed above the, the state capitol. So they were close to a hundred different amendments, all disingenuous, but just trying to delay it so they would go forward. And she did nothing around that. She just stood back and waited. And she said one or two things that were not overtly racist and that she's gotten more credit for that than she deserves. Having said that, it's a very dangerous to Democrats message because Democrats are very ambivalent about explicitly and unapologetically embracing multiracial politics and people of color. And so the silence and the timidity in the Democratic side, combined with somebody who's being very racially explicit on the Republican side about race, saying, I'm a person of color and look at this party, it's a dangerous situation. And it's it's fraught in terms of what the her electoral appeal could be. That's why I was also very worried about Marco Rubio as well, is that the the timidity on the side of Democrats to fully back people of color leaves them vulnerable to Republicans of color stepping forward and saying that they are people of color and their party is not racist, even though it is, but it gives it it, it validates the racism of the party and gives and, and uh, what's the opposite of whitewashing or whatever, maybe how that plays itself out with people of color. So that's the danger. The question is, in a party as racist, so much of their base is motivated by white nationalism, white racial resentment, as we talked about in terms of Trump, Trump and DeSantis, what's her constituency within the party? And does she have enough political power force to get elected and to defeat a Trump or to defeat a Santos? I don't think that she does. And I don't think that's even what she's playing for. I think she's actually trying to position for vice president. But I do think that her message and her rhetoric and her persona are actually quite uh, dangerous and need to be taken seriously. I agree. Uh, and we're going to we'll wrap up by talking about another Republican of color. And his name is Tim Scott. He's South Carolina politician. He's also apparently preparing for a run. He's African-American. And I wanted to just say that my daughter, who does now hear me and my husband talk a lot about politics over the years, has said, you know, mom, can you explain again why some black people are Republicans? <laughs> she goes, I just don't get it. I said, well, in A, internalized racism is real and people want to align with power. There are still people who feel like if they feel like that's where they can gain power and attach themselves and align themselves with power. That's what they're going, you know, they'll do anything to try to get it. So having said that, Senator Tim Scott, he'll be hosting a donor summit in Charleston, South Carolina this month. And he's also scheduled to visit Iowa and New Hampshire. So he's definitely taking this seriously and getting into the fray. According to Politico, Scott will likely make a play for the evangelical Christian vote, a strategy similar to former Vice President Mike Pence who is also a potential contender for next year's Republican primary. So as you had mentioned about Nikki Haley, uh, it seems that some experts or observers also think Tim Scott is mainly trying to get into the public eye during this presidential election cycle because he's trying to get to the VP seat as opposed to actually becoming the next president this round. So Steve, what do you think Scott's strategy is to win and to win over, say, evangelical conservatives and 
do you think his approach can work for the brother? Well, I think it's the same, a very similar thing to the, the Nikki Haley dynamics. And actually, Nikki Haley appointed Tim Scott to the U.S. Senate in 2013 after the re-election of a black president. And the Republicans trying to figure out what they, how they were going to navigate this, right? So let me just, so let me just say a couple of sentences. I, I, I wrote about Tim Scott in, in, in How We Win the Civil War. I said, hopefully Tim Scott doesn't think he's in the U.S. Senate because he's smart. While he surely has some talent and intelligence, the Republican Scott is today South Carolina's U.S. Senator because he's black. What Scott lacked in experience, he more than made up for in melanin. And so I say all that to say that there, he had very little actual qualifications or electoral success compared to the other people who Nikki Haley could have appointed. But Barack Obama had just won. And we talked about there's the Republican Party autopsy. There was a sense they had to do more about people of color. And so it's not accidental that they appointed a black man weeks after the re-election of a black man as president of the United States. And that's how Scott got into the Senate. And so it's the same dynamic as with Haley now is that he's dangerous because he puts a black face on a party fundamentally rooted in white nationalism. But can that person stoke the flames of resentment in the same way that Trump and DeSantis can? And then similarly with Haley, I don't think he's necessarily playing a game to win the presidency this year as a young man, that this is about potentially vice president, nominee, and laying the groundwork for a future future run. So it's a similar, he and he and Haley are very similar in terms of what they represent in terms of the Republican Party in terms of 2024. Okay, Steve. So before we sign off for today, how are you feeling overall about the race, uh, including our side? And what are some of the things that people can do starting now to give us the best chance of winning, holding the White House and the Senate come election day next year? And, and winning taking, back the house. Right, taking back the house. So fundamentally, this is about getting as many people as possible to vote. There's, there, that's the single most important thing that any and all of us can do. And we know it's the single most important thing because it's the single most important thing that the Republicans are focused on stopping from happening. They, they just passed a law in Georgia uh, um, saying that you can't take any private money to help fund elections. And so they were mad that Zuckerberg put all this money up to assist local registrars to be able to conduct elections in a more efficient fashion. So since when are entities turning down charitable dollars only when it comes around to helping people vote? So the fundamental dynamics we keep talking about on the podcast, and I think the recent, you know, the past several years, decades have affirmed that we are in this battle around this can be a multiracial democracy or this can be a white nationalist nation. The demographic revolutions create a situation where the, there is a new American majority consisting of the overwhelming majority of people of color and a meaningful minority of whites. That is together the majority of people within this country. And as we were talking about, it's won most of the presidential elections. It keeps getting bigger every day, which is why they continue to try to shrink the vote every, every, every day. It's what elected Biden. It's what enabled the Democrats to do better in 2022 than, the, than people realized. And it is what is likely if we are able to get people out to vote in the commensurate numbers to be able to defeat whichever Republican emerges and to hold the Senate and to take back the House. But it's all about making sure we get as many people as possible to vote. And we have a crusade for democracy in this country. That's the fundamental imperative. And if we do do that, I am confident that we will, in fact, prevail and have the majority and the working majority to try to make this country the kind of place we 
think it can be. We can do it. Yes, we can. I have to keep I have to keep said. telling myself that, but we can. Yes. It's definitely great. possible. All right. Well, we could talk about this forever, obviously, but I don't think people could listen forever. So we should wrap here. And um, so th- thank uh, all of our listeners for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook, or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at, at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, although the Republicans can be scary, keep the faith.